Well, as many of you know, it's the, the NFL season. And uh, as you know, uh, all I really care about when it comes to NFL is the Jets winning. Uh, those of you who are like doing uh, bets or anything like that, I, I will try to mention the Jets as often as I can during the season. So that's one, right? You can put that down in your card. Uh, this is a safe place. I can admit also that there's not been much winning for the Jets uh, over the years. Um, it's been rough for your boy, right? It's been rough. Uh, however, while the Jets have not won in real life, uh, there is one area where they've won a lot, and it's in the video game life. Uh, I have, uh, over the years, uh, played a lot of uh, a video game called Madden Football. And in that game, uh, I control the Jets franchise, right? I make all the trades, I do all the plays, I do everything. And in that game, I tell the story, and in that story, the Jets are now, I think, on their fifth Super Bowl in a row. <laughs> we have uh, broken all sorts of historic records. It's been a great story. Uh, and of course, that makes sense, because I care a lot about the Jets, and so in any story that I'm telling, the Jets uh, are the good guys, right? They win. The bad guys, is the entire NFL, especially the Patriots, they lose, <laughs> all right? They lose, they lose badly, right? When I'm sort of in control of that story, that's, that's what you want in a story that you care about, in a story that involves things that you care about. Uh, we have a natural desire for good to win <laughs> and for evil to be judged and for there to be uh, uh, an ultimate good result. Uh, uh, as I said, they win and they keep winning. That, that feels good. That's what I want. And, and that's, as I said, not exclusive to me. We tell all sorts of stories in the world, real and imaginary, but the ones we care about the most, the ones that involve us, the ones that involve the things and people that we care about, those kind of stories, there's going to be twists and turns, right? And so in, the thing, in these kind of stories, that means like it's always good, everything always works out, right? There, there's there's twists and turns, but ultimately, we want a happy ending. Ultimately, in the stories we care the most about, we want the wrongs that have been committed, we want justice to be done, we want our heroes to triumph, we want good to come out in the end. And I believe that is a God-given desire. That hasn't come out of nowhere. That, that sense you have about the kind of life stories we live and, the, and the, those others around you involving the things you most care about, that, that sense you have that personally resonates with you, it, it, it resonates with you because it mirrors something that God is doing cosmically. As Christians, what we believe is that there is an ultimate, ultimate story. And in that ultimate story, what happens in the world, what happens in the universe is, yes, evil is defeated. Sin is judged. God wins in the end, and he wins forever. Goodness and righteousness is established forever by the heroic work of God. That's the big overall story. That's what we mean by saying we believe in restoration, what God is ultimately doing, what he's going to restore. And so that's a big way of summing up. But this, this morning what I want to do is maybe break it down to, to three different beliefs we have about that. Three different beliefs we have about what God is doing, the ultimate story what God is bringing about the world that resonates with what we want in our stories. So the first belief is this. We believe that the hero will come back and will win. We believe that the hero will come back and win. The story we believe as Christians is that God has sent someone to help us and save us. That someone is Jesus, the son of God. And Jesus is the hero. He was the hero so much so that he was committed to saving us, to helping us and saving us even to the point of death, to dying on the cross to help us and to save us. But in this story, because it's the best kind of story, and that's not the end. Death does not win over Jesus. He triumphs over all things. 
he rises from the dead, he returns to God, and he leaves this promise, I'm coming back to complete the story. What I've begun through the cross and saving people to myself, I will bring about throughout the whole world. I am coming back. The hero comes back. We believe Jesus is coming back. This is from Acts 1. So Jesus talking to the disciples, and he says that when he said these things, the disciples were looking, he was lifted up into a cloud out of their sight, and they're still looking up into heaven, watching him having gone. And then two men, these are angels, appear before them. And here's what the, what the angel said to them, say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. You don't need to stand here. Don't worry. He's coming back. Revelation 22:20. 20, this is the last chapter of the Bible, and it says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus. He's coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. When we think about a hero, a hero never gives up. He never throws in the towel. A hero keeps going after it, keeps coming back over and over again, does whatever it takes to win and to save his people. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate hero. And what we have with him is a victory achieved on the cross, a salvation for all those who've turned and trusted in him, and one day, a salvation and redemption for the cosmos. What we want in our stories is going to be witnessed cosmically. Jesus is coming as that hero. We will first look at Jesus. Jesus is on the cross in nakedness and shame. But the promise of the Bible is Jesus coming back in power and might. He comes back to save. He comes back to show that good does triumph over evil. That righteousness does win. And so one of the things for us to take away from this, believing this, means then that, I mean, we should look for, pray for, expect the return of Jesus. This is not just an imaginary thing for us. This is not just a, like, you know, uh, Sort of like a, a sort of a, a thing we sort of throw on to a sweet little bedtime story, right? To kind of help us go to sleep at night. Now, this is this is real that Jesus is coming back in time and history. The same way we believe Jesus walked on this earth is the same way Jesus will come back on this earth and show that what he achieved on the cross will now be achieved throughout the cosmos. We believe the hero returns. There are hero stories, and that ultimately culminates in Jesus coming back and securing victory over all things. So we believe Jesus is the hero who comes back. He comes back to win. But the second thing we believe, and we'll spend a little time on this, obviously tied into this, what, what is he coming to do? He's winning. He's coming back to win. He's coming back to win over sin and evil. And so the second belief is this. We believe there will be a final judgment and fair punishment on all evil. Look, I get it. It is not popular to talk about this subject. Talk about divine judgment, divine punishment, and it's understandable in a certain sense. I mean, what we're talking about is hell. Hell is not a casual subject. It's not something just to throw out there. Right? We, I get that. But it's not something we can ignore. It's in the Bible. Little known fact, one of the things Jesus talked the most about was divine judgment and punishment. He's talked a whole lot about it, arguably more than anyone else. So it's real. It's, it's real, and I think it's helpful to understand this as part of this story that we're telling. It's a necessary part of the story. That any real life story, as I told you, there is bad things that happen. There's no story where only good things happen, no real life story. All our stories, my story included, your story, I know bad things have happened. Wrongs and evils have been committed. And we naturally want something done. 
We want it to be dealt with. We're not okay with people getting away with it and the things that we care about the most and the things that affect us the most. We have a natural desire for something to happen. Today is 9-11, and if you were alive back then, you remember what it was like to watch the towers fall, how shocking it was, how, how unsettling that was. And maybe you remember what it felt like to realize and to discover terrorists were behind it led by Osama bin Laden. No one here would have been happy if, like, that was the end of the story and he got away with it. <laughs> the end. None of us would be. We saw a great injustice and evil happen, and there was a natural desire, natural impulse, almost like a, like a, something, a burden that we could not get rid of. Like, something has to be done. We won't feel right until it's dealt with, until justice is done. There's a natural and right impulse. And as Christians, that, we recognize that natural and right impulse that we feel in ourselves, it's an echo of something that has felt perfectly by the God of this universe. A God who is a God of justice and righteousness. A God who will deal with all evil and unrighteousness and all sin. All things that have fallen away and rejected God. There's a story of this world. And yes, it includes, it has to include this. Any good story requires evil to be faced. For judgment to be rendered. And for punishment to come. A punishment that comes in the form of hell. Now when we think about hell, how should we understand this? And, and like really what we're talking about is a place of punishment for those who've rejected God. And what does it mean to reject God? I, I think it helps to break this down a little bit because we are filled with all sorts of like popular conceptions about what hell is and what it's about. I mean, what does it mean to reject God? Let's understand who God is, right? Source of all goodness and righteousness and justice and fairness. So to reject God means, for example, choosing selfishness over kindness and generosity. To reject God means choosing pride over humility. It means choosing betrayal over faithfulness. It means choosing conflict over peace. That's what we're talking about here. If God is good, and he is good, and he's sent Jesus to lead us towards goodness, if you say no to God and no to Jesus, the only other direction is away from goodness. Right? Rejecting God and rejecting means, rejecting Jesus means going away from goodness and trying to establish something different. Something opposite from God. Not goodness. <laughs> all the things I just listed, selfishness and pride and envy and hostility and all these different things. It's trying to create in a universe that God has created good, little pockets that are not good. That are full of selfishness and envy and pride and enmity. It's trying to get away with it. It's trying to get away with it. And so if we're trying to see the story in this larger sense, well, of course the Bible is saying, well, no. Like, no one should get away with it. There can't be a world where we get away with it, where any of us get away with it. And hell is the realization that no, there is a judgment and there is a punishment. Now, there's a, as I said, I, I would not look to popular media for like what hell is and what the, the popular conceptions of it. I think that, that's helpful. There's a lot of imagery and metaphors used in the Bible. Uh, but it is enough to say this. Here's a place where people have rejected God and continue to reject God. That... What we're looking at is almost like it is possible to go on a trajectory where the more you fall away from God, the more you are falling in away from God. You almost get, you get trapped. You go further. It's like you're falling down, and the more you sort of swat God away, the deeper you'll get. Imagine like you're in this house, and every time you're rejecting God, every time you're rejecting Jesus, every time you're rejecting his goodness and his righteousness and his fairness and all those things, you're adding more walls around your house. Right? Every single time you do that. Eventually, it will be like a mountain on top of you, <laughs> several mountains. And at some point, God says, well, all right, 
You face the consequences of that. And hell is the consequences of building a rejection of who God is and all that he's about. Now, that's what we're talking about uh, when we think about hell. A, a demonstration of God's judgment and his punishment. But really key to this, and I think sort of the thing to put on top of this to help us understand why this is a necessary part of the story is this is God's fair judgment and fair punishment. That word fair is critical here. God's fair judgment is fair punishment. This story only works if what happens is fair. Well, here's, what, here's how we know it's fair. It's who God is. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A faithful God who does no wrong, he is righteous and true. The best story is the one we care about. Work not on unfair things happening. It works on fair things happening. So when we think about judgment, divine judgment and punishment, the question is, is God fair? Is he treating us fairly? Is this the right response towards the evil and injustice that's done, whoever has done it? And the Bible's answer is that, yes, it is. It very much is. Because God is a God, notice that verse. Basically, it's saying he never ignores the evidence. That God makes his judgment based on all the evidence laid out. There's no bias with him. There's no... uh, there's no way in which he can be bribed. He's, not in, he's impartial. He's without bias. He's always fair, always just. It means, and the Bible's using words that we're familiar with, right? It's not, we understand what fairness and justice is. And so that means when we stand before God, there's no one in all of history or in future history who will stand before God and say this is unfair. Like it, we, can't, we can't do it. We won't do it. That's if we have a God who sees all the evidence, and, and I think one of the things that's interesting, when we see people suffer the judgment of God, what we see is people who don't like it, but we never really see anyone say, this is unfair, God. This is unjust. They don't like it. In many ways, at a certain point, their hearts are hardened. They, they continue to be selfish, even more so now. They're locked in place. But in the end, when we're standing before God, we recognize it's an evidence of his fair justice. Imagine... Imagine turning on the news and you hear a report about someone who, you, as soon as you turn it on, you hear this report that this person has gotten life without parole. Um, that, that was a, sort of a judgment that was entered by, the, by justice. Life, no parole. Life in prison, no parole. Um, your first thought would not be, well, that's not fair. Why, was, why is that? Well, because of the country we live in, that when our justice system, when it's working at its best, <laughs> we have this sense that... Whatever that judgment was, must, he must, your, your first thought would have been like, well, he must have done something really bad. <laughs> we know that's how our system works. He got life without parole. And so if you learn then, as you continue to watch the news report, that this life in prison without parole came about because this person committed an armed robbery, armed robbery that killed lots of people, including a young couple that just had a newborn baby, you would think, oh, that's fair. You might actually think there should be more done. That's naturally what you think. And it, it, it makes sense. That's the things that we care about, the stories, the life stories we care about, that is our natural response. This applies to God. I think sometimes we can enter into this subject only paying attention to the end result and not appreciating how we get there. Not appreciating that all this comes and ties out of who God is. The Bible talks about our lives being laid out before God. Good things and bad things. (laughs) All of it laid out. And the response of God is that, it says here in Romans 3.19, the fairness of God is such that every mouth will be stopped. It almost suggests to me that like, we'll have the opportunity to say something and, and they'll be like, eh, no, I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. 
it says the whole world will be held accountable in Romans 3.19. That means no one's going to be able to complain. That, that sense of like, yeah, I'll be held accountable. And we'll see what happens. That Romans 1.7 says well, we'll be without excuse. Again, the implication being that like, we'll have opportunity to say, well, here's a good excuse. And if it's a good excuse, it will pass. But about saying, no, there won't be. That God's judgments and his punishment are true and fair and just. And I think maybe what we realize now is what we're talking about is our lives laid out. Everything. Good things and bad things. Good deeds, bad deeds. Good thoughts, bad thoughts. Good desires, bad desires. Good motives, bad motives. Everything laid out. What we realize then is, yeah, we're talking about sin and evil. Maybe the, the, the thing we got to wrestle with is not just, it's easy to think of it out there. And yes, we want it dealt with out there. But to think of what it means in here, in our own hearts, in our own souls, our own tendencies. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the word comes. Look at this. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The story of good and evil touches all things and it touches our own hearts. It touches our own hearts. So what, is it, what do we do with this? I think this is a legitimate warning from the Bible. The offer of God is an invitation. Come follow me. That's sort of the positive expression of that. Praise God for that. I love giving that offer. (laughs) Here's Jesus and God calling us into his goodness and righteousness. But I think at times it's important to also recognize there's also a warning. Like don't go it on your own. (laughs) There's a warning here as well that is clear. The Bible says in many ways it's it's, it's a, a, a testimony to a God of creation when we look around the world. But especially revealed through the scriptures, through Jesus, there's a warning here. that, And the warning is this, God will be fair and just with you. I mean, that's, that's a starting point. And that should encourage you. God is going to be fair and just with all of us. But sin is a big deal. Rejecting God is a big deal. What we've said, what we've done, what we've thought. And I think what the Bible is trying to help us see is that right now you think you're good, but when it's all laid out, you won't like what you see. You may think, I'll be good. The Bible is trying to say, and even giving us windows into our hearts and soul to say, when it's all laid out, where you think you land in the story is not where you actually will land. When it's all laid out, and God's going to be completely fair with us and just with us, right? we, we might say, oh, man, this is fair, and I, 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 I don't know how to handle this. I can't. If you feel overwhelmed by that, that's okay, because, again, remember what the first part of the story is. There is a hero. And the Bible's promise is not that you're going to stand before God one day and it's all laid out for you and here's your judgment and punishment and you're going to accept it because you realize this is fair and that's all you got to do. The promise of the Bible is when it's all laid out, you realize, wow, that is a lot and you'll turn to your side and if you believe in Jesus and realize he's right there. And Jesus, the defender, will be like, I got this covered. I got this covered. The promise of the Bible is the hero is there even for the evildoer. The hero is there even for us sinners. By the grace of God, all your life will be laid out. All of what you've said and thought and desired, all of it, all the secret things. And in many ways, God won't see any of it because Jesus will have covered it all. He will have covered it all. You'll be forgiven. You'll be free and clear and right before God. Evil and sin will be judged all over this world. Thank God for that. Evil Evil and sin will be judged all in my own heart and soul. Thank God for that. God will deal with that. 
so that then we can end in this place. This has to happen so that we can finally say this. This is the final thing we believe about what happens in the end. We believe there will be, and they all lived happily ever after ending for the world and for God's people. Like, happily ever after, no wonder we like happily ever after stories. God is telling you, like, yeah, I like them too. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to bring about. That's what I'm trying to do. Romans 8 tells us that right now all creation is subjected to futility. It's not working the way it should. You can sense that. Like, you sense that not just in creation. We sense that in some of our relationships, in our institutions, in our structures. Sometimes it works well, but other times it doesn't work well. And when the times it doesn't work well, that makes us upset for why it doesn't work well as it should. We're not surprised by that. That's, that's the way the world is right now because sin and evil reign over world in our own hearts. But God deals with it such that one day there is a cosmos, a universe, a world free from sin, free from evil. The Bible describes a new universe where heaven and the world come together. It's like a new heavenly world. They merge together. Heaven and the earth merge together. And in that place, there's no tears, there's no crying, there's no pain because there's no sin and no evil. All things are brand new. Imagine a world that's like that. We've never had a world like that. A world that is free from pain and wrong and sin. A world of happily ever afters forever. What will that world be like? I mean, it, it's a world that functions more than our current world does. And so the Bible is not talking about us going up in clouds one day in robes and playing harps. The Bible is talking about this world, Phoenix, right, Arizona, the United States of America, Africa, Asia, Europe, this world being infused with heaven such that we have something unlike anything you ever imagined possible. In this world, in that new heavenly world, every conversation ends with a smile and delight on people's faces. There's never a bad conversation. There's never a bad fellowship time. In this world, every relationship you have is fulfilling and fun and significant. It's never a waste of time. In this world, the food and drink is always good, and the next time you have food and drink, it's better than the last time. It only gets better. In this world, even the simplest things, the Bible is saying, yes, don't, don't, this is not imaginary. Like, you can yearn for and expect a world where even breathing oxygen feels good. <laughs> where walking down the street right now would be like, this is great. I love this. <laughs> We're sitting in this chair feels amazingly comfortable. <laughs> and the next time you do it, it feels better than that. This is a world where we're ever growing in knowledge and wisdom, a world where we're ever creating, ever exploring, ever discovering, and getting to delight and enjoy what we create and, and discover and explore. It's a world where we just know goodness and truth. It's a world where we know beauty and joy. And the reason all those things are possible is because this is a world where God lives. When the Bible talks about heaven being infused with this world, God comes along with it. God says, I'm coming to live in this world with you. Such that we know beauty and joy at its highest level. And all the things that go along with God's beauty, his very glory, always forever. Because why we live in the very presence of God. That every moment of every day in this world, because sin and evil in our own hearts, in our institutions, in our countries, in our world, has been eliminated and taken away. And so that... All we had now is the opportunity to see God, to know God, enjoy God, and worship him forever. It's, it's a life where you're going to always feel loved, always feel at peace, always full of joy, always full of wonder and delight. Because 
Psalm 16 and 11 tells us, in the Lord's presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Like, I, I don't think that verse is true. And I think we sense that. There's times where you're in the presence of someone and like you get moments of just like great happiness, right? Especially someone who really cares about you, really knows you. There's friendships that you have that are like that, marriages that are like that. Maybe you felt that from your parents at different moments. Maybe you feel that from your kids. Like all those things, all those things are legit and they're echoes of a divine reality, of a God who always has those things for you. And he sent Jesus to remove all the barriers and all the blocks so that you can experience his pure joy, his pure love, his pure delight always in your life, his peace always in your life. Don't think that that's just like something for some people. I want you to think and believe that is the normal state of things. The way it is now is not what it's supposed to be. It should be better. But guess what? God is going to make it better. And he's saying, follow me as I make it better. See the hero I sent to make it better. What that means then is great hope, doesn't it? It means hope for today. You have great hope the moment you took a breath this morning and came out of bed. No matter what happened the day before, no matter what's going to happen today, you have great hope because, I've said this often, there is an end of this story that you know is for sure. And you also know God has already done some things to show, like, this is where it's headed. He's done some things in your life. He's done things in other people's life to know where it's headed. And if, for those of you who are unsure about these things, I mean, what, what, I think a lot of what God does is say, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing around you. Let me remind you of the things I'm about. We will remind you and, re, and, and, and bring back to your memory the fact that I am real and I do redeem and restore. I make all things new. So that gives hope for today and gives your expectation for what will happen in the future. Here is what will happen for all things. Here's what's going to happen in your own life. No matter how broken or unsure or uncertain your life is, here's what God is doing to fuse it together, to make it one free of pain, free of envy, free of pride, free of sin, and in its place filled into your heart and soul will be joy and peace forevermore. And you know this to the degree in which you are tethered to God and tethered to Jesus. That is the hope to wake up tomorrow morning and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. And thank God it's not a hope you got to generate from yourself. It's a hope God is giving you. And all this, what is God saying? Look at me. Look at Jesus. Look what I'm doing. The hero returns. Evil is defeated. Good wins. We live happily ever after. Roosevelt, that's not just a good story. That is a true story. And that's the story we believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've done. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. We don't just believe in good stories. We believe in true stories. A true story of how you made this world in goodness and we broke it. And you've created a way to fix it in and through Jesus. That is what we believe. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, Lord, heed the invitation, but also heed the warning. Lord, we um, don't want to, to face your judgment and the punishment of hell. Um, Lord, we know. Right now, we may not be sure it's fair and just, but your promise is it will be fair and just. But your promise is also, Lord, uh, and I believe the scripture says, you don't want any of us to be condemned. That's why you give the free offer of Jesus. And for those who have not yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray, we begin to take that step. And a step, Lord, into your goodness and your righteousness. A step into 
and to a sense of purpose and meaning or a step into love and peace, Lord. That, Lord, you promise these things, Lord, not just to come, but even now, Lord, when we begin to trust in you. And so, Lord God, uh, for those who feel hopeless, remind them of this hope. For those who feel uncertain, give them this certainty. Here is where all things are headed. Here's the story you're writing. Here is what you're accomplishing. Lord, thank you for how you have already built that in our hearts to want these things. And Lord, help us then to listen to you as you write this story, as you invite us into it. Lord, um, continue, Lord, to kill sin in our hearts. Continue, Lord, to restore, renew the, the people in this room, the relationships represented in this room, the workplaces, the places of we have fun, the places we like to go eat. Uh, all this world, Lord, continue to do your work to renew and restore it as we seek you and follow Jesus. And Lord, is why we can say, quickly come, Lord Jesus. Quickly come, make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.